Amen. We are glad to have this morning. I want to invite them to come. Mr. Don and Miss Evie, they were missionaries uh, for many, many years in Nairobi. Um, they are here with us today. They are now retired, living the good life. Uh, Mr. Don is a great man. He has great taste. He drives a Dodge truck. Very happy about that. Amen. Yes, he is from God. He is anointed, and it is great that they are here with us today. But they served as the East Africa Field Strategy Coordinators for several years. And so they are going to be with us this morning, and they're going to be with us tonight and tomorrow at District Assembly. And it's been great just to get to know them this morning. So give them a nice big Greenbrier welcome. Nama Duama Buana, Quahili Lane, Gia Yangu, Ningizia, Nikam Ridisha, Atanda Dumisha, Tameni Uti Pia, Ameni Uti, Gia Pueke Nihi, Yaparaha Qua Yesu, Ameni Ukati. Do you know that song? You guys know Swahili. Awesome. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust him and obey. And I'm glad I learned that at a young age. Grew up in a country church in South Dakota. Knew that God had a plan for my life. I trusted him. I thought I, when I was 18, I thought I was being asked to be a pastor's wife. So I went to Mid-America, met Don. He was... Um, doing the course of study to be in ministry, so he qualified, amongst other things. And so we, proceed, we got married after my sophomore year, and um, then he was on the 11-year plan, I think it was, of getting finished with his schooling. And he went to Bethany Nazarene because of starting a family and all that. He went to Bethany Nazarene and finished his degree there. And um, while he was there, he went on a work and witness trip. Anybody here been on a work and witness trip? Oh, I need to see more hands next time. So anyway, while he was on that work and witness trip, uh, the Lord spoke to him about being a missionary. And he had been trying on a whole bunch of different hats. Was it supposed to be an evangelist, a youth pastor, a song evangelist? He was just trying on different hats. And um, when the Lord revealed to him that he was to be a missionary, it felt just completely right. And he said a quick yes to the Lord. But he told the Lord, he says, um, you're going to have to call Evie too. You, I'm not going to talk to her about it. You will call her. And even headquarters says the same thing. Both spouses have to have that call. So when he came home, um, I sensed that he had been called to be a missionary. But I was like, uh, no, um, pastoring is what we're going to be doing, you know. I had all these reasons for not being a missionary. You know, I didn't want to live in a grass hut. We don't, but the unknown. Um, I didn't want to separate from family. I knew possibly our children might go to boarding school, and they did, um, but just separating them from um, grandparents, I didn't want that. And But the biggest reason was that I felt like I wasn't missionary material. And so... I just kind of balked for a whole year. But one Sunday morning, the pastor was speaking on doing God's will. And he asked us two questions that morning and asked us to look inside ourselves and ask ourselves, 
And you can ask yourself the same two questions. Are you doing what God wants you to do in your life? Are you following the will of the Lord? And when I looked inside, I knew I had to say yes to missions. Well, that's some 30 years ago. On the way home, I told Don, I said, we can start a preparation for mission service. And he hadn't talked to me about it at all, so he was pleasantly surprised. We got a hold of headquarters. They said, we need you to be ordained. And so um, we were looking for a church, and God led us out to northern Arizona. And when we were reopening Twin Wells Indian School, now called Native Christian Native American Christian Academy. And when we got there, I got all excited. I was like, hey, this is a mission field. It's a cross-cultural experience. And, you know, I became willing to be a, a missionary, and God's going to keep me right here in the United States. Even my mom and dad came, and they lived there until just a few years ago. And I just was like, this is great. I'm here to stay. And um, three years went by. Don was a pastor. I was a teacher. And Don had been ordained on the Arizona district. And so um, we went to General Assembly in 1989. And there was a mission emphasis night. And Louise Marie Chapman prayed for 20 minutes at night. Really, really powerful um, prayer, almost like a sermon. But during that prayer, Don and I both felt that God was saying, what about your overseas mission call? So we had to say yes, we had to surrender, we had to trust him, and we had to obey. So we went forward, said, okay, Lord, this, this once you want, you know, we're here to, to obey you. We told headquarters, Don's been ordained, we're ready to be assigned. They brought us in for all of the interviews and all the tests, and I... Um, the, one of the interviews, they was like, do you have a particular place that you feel God is calling you to? And we both said no. They had talked to us about being in a Spanish-speaking country because Don had learned Spanish in university, and he had building experience, so they had talked to us about work and witness coordinating. So we thought it was going to be a work and witness coordinator in a Spanish-speaking country, but we didn't have a particular country. So we said, no, we don't, we don't feel directed any certain way. But I spoke up and I said, I don't think we're supposed to go to Africa. What they do, I don't know. They wrote down Africa, forgot the no. I don't know. Because we were at the time we, they were being announced. Uh, we were all being announced to where we were going to serve. And um, they said, Don and Evie are assigned to Malawi. And Don leans over to me and goes, where is that? I said, there's a mistake. It's in Africa. They, they, they didn't say Maui. It's, it, it's in Africa. And I only knew that because I had been working in headquarters. And we were shocked. We thought, surely they had made a mistake. But we started praying about it. Lord, is this, is this from you? Sure enough, it was from him. And at that time, we took our girls, ages 6, 10, and 12, to the mission field. Our 12-year-old, who was always such a good kid, said, you know, when we told her we're going to Africa, she ran from the room screaming, I'm not going, and slammed the, her bedroom door behind her. And um, we sat in the living room thinking, wow, you know, they told us that teenage age might be a little bit difficult to uproot them. So we just prayed and talked a bit. And um, about an hour passed, she comes out, and she'd been sobbing. Her face is still red. 
And she says, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. We can go to the mission field. God just called me to be a missionary too. You know, one of the things that was my reason for not being a missionary is separation from family. Yes, they did go to boarding school. But God, um, when we, we had been 11 years in Malawi, and they come to us and say, can we get you to um, consider the Africa Eastfield directorship? And the girls, can you bring my water up? I got a medicine that keeps giving me a dry mouth. The girls um, had been going to school outside of Nairobi. And we got a chance to be there just a couple times. Um, and when we landed in that city, we're like, oh, we're so thankful we do not live here. And so when they asked us to be, you know, go to live in Nairobi and to be there for um, being the field strategy coordinator, we didn't want that job either, but we definitely did not want to live in Nairobi, so we just said, no thanks, thinking that they would just take our no thanks for no thanks. But um, they said, well, we feel that God has led us to you, so please pray about it. So we said, they said, give us a week of prayer. Well, within three days, we knew that the Lord had, been call had called us to Nairobi, Kenya. And what was neat, though, is that our oldest daughter, who said, you know, she was called to be a missionary, she had moved to Kenya to be a teacher at a Christian school just a month or two before we got there. So God gives us blessings sometime we don't even know we're going to have when we trust him and obey. There's been many programs in Kenya that I've learned just to trust God in. He's led me down paths of mentoring, um, bringing, like I tell you about one gal today, um, she came into my life, had a list of things wrong um, for half hour, she just spilled, and she had, had been wanting to let in her life, and so another one of my mentees brought her to me, and um, she had a list that was unbelievable, um, a mother that was in an insane asylum, um, well, she had, she had um, done street work, she had had abortions, she had had rapes, she had lots and lots of abuse, um, even from people in the church, um, not Nazarene church, but another church, and um, her sister had died of HIV AIDS, leaving her to raise a child along with the other family members, and the list was huge, and I was like, Lord, um, I, and when she left, she ran off to um, uh, singing a, a, a gig. That's how she raised her um, funds, is just get a few dollars here and there. And so when she left, I was like, Lord, this is too much for me. She's, she needs professional help. And the Lord just really impressed on me, just love on her. And so I said, okay. We had our ups and downs, but I kept loving on her. She gave her life to the Lord. And now, even today, I got a text from her. They were at church with their family. And um, she's now wanting to serve the Lord by using her past to help those in the same kind of situation. So Donna and I, last year, we were here for a good part of 2020. Wasn't that a great year, 2020? Um, and um, one of the reasons why we were here is Don had cancer. And so um, the Lord um, led us to MD Anderson. And he had the surgery, he had the chemo, and we were finally um, ready to go back. Then I had COVID, and so we had to wait for another month till that cleared. And so when we got back, we only had four months to pack up 30 years of 
memories and, you know, say our goodbyes and all that. So all of my mentees, I call them my Africa kids, my Kenya kids, um, a lot of them are musicians. And I told them, I said, hey, I said, we need a new fresh video. Here's some ideas. Will you guys put together something? So when you see our video today, you know it was put together by Kenyan young adults that really love the Lord. And Paula is um, in one of the frames. Her whole face is in the picture with her holding a microphone. And she's, you know, being used of the Lord just as others. You know, when I was um, getting into mentoring and stuff, the Lord showed me this verse. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. That's Psalm 71, 18. And it's important for us, whatever God is telling you to do, um, whether you're getting on an age and you're imparting your knowledge to the younger ones or you're the younger ones and you're wondering what God wants you to do in your life, remember, trust him and obey. There is no other way. Well, my greatest desire has been for a number of years is to see God's people overcome with his Holy Spirit. And I, I would really love to have one time while I'm still on this earth to see God move upon the people and to move upon all of us. And uh, I honestly believe that if, if we would allow him to overcome us, and I, when I say that, I mean, I mean it in stronger ways than just coming to a revival service and having warm fuzzies for three or four days. But I'm talking about being overcome like they were in the New Testament, where the Holy Spirit came upon people in the upper room, and you know they got, they got so excited they couldn't even sit still. And that when the, the tongues of fire landed on every head, I'll bet that hurt. No, I don't know if it did or not. But, I, but I, you know, I don't care if we see the tongues of fire, but I want to see the power of the Holy Spirit upon his people. When those people were filled with his Holy Spirit, they couldn't sit still. They had to get up, and they jumped up, and they ran outside. They couldn't even stay in the room. And they told everybody they know about Jesus, and 3,000 were one to Jesus in one day. And that was just the first day. Imagine what God could do with the church if we would allow him to overcome us with his Holy Spirit in that like manner, where we would be filled up to overflowing and we couldn't even sit still. We'd have to share Jesus with everybody. I believe he would change the communities we live in. I believe he would change, you know, the, he could change the whole United States, maybe even a few, a few politicians. It, it's possible. God can do anything. But I want to see him overcome his people with his Holy Spirit. And Paul says in the, in the book of Ephesians, he said, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or even think. I can think of some pretty good stuff. But I can, if we can't even think of what he can do, just, just imagine. And his imagination is greater than ours. What he could do with the church. We've had opportunity to see what can happen when men and women are filled up with his Holy Spirit. And when we're talking about sanctification and talking about holiness, that's really just Christ-likeness. And he came here for one reason, is to mend the broken relationship. 
that we had with God. And this is what we see happening across the continent of Africa. And throughout East Africa, we see men and women who are filled with His Spirit, who are going out there, and because of being filled with His Spirit, they are able to share the gospel in places that we can't even go. God has His amazing grace, which changes people from the inside out and forever and ever. And I just trust that, that what we have to say today will impact all of us to the point where God can use us in, in incredible ways and beyond what we can even imagine or think. I wanted to share with you this morning some very short stories about what the church looks like in Africa, in Eastern Africa. Uh, we, have, we have places in Africa, uh, continent, on the continent there, in countries where we can't, we can't even go, but they, our, our Africans can go. And we have places where it is illegal to be a Christian. Countries, you know, we call them creative access countries uh, because we had to be very creative in how we access those countries and, ha and be able to share Christ with people who are there. And we've discovered that in those situations, God is always there first before we even arrive. And it's amazing what He can do when we are ready and willing to be obedient and to accept what He has for us to do. I want to describe for you my first experience in an underground church. Uh, we, we, they had taken me to a, a certain city there in East Africa, and, and we, we stopped at a, a, and stayed in a hotel. And that night they told me, Rev Don, in the morning we're going to come and pick you up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to go over to, the, to where our underground church is, and we're going to worship with our underground people. And they woke, they came at 8 o'clock, and I, I was actually awake, and they came and got me at 8 o'clock in the morning. We drove across town to, a, to this place where um, it, there's a huge apartment complex, a big, big development that was there, and there are probably 300 apartments all in this one place, you know, multi-story buildings and several acres of apartments. And, and they came, and, and uh, we drove to that place, and, and when we got there, we got out of the car, and we walked into the middle of that apartment complex somewhere, and they knocked on a door, and when they knocked on the door, the pastor opened the door and ushered us in quickly and so that we wouldn't be seen standing outside his door. And we went inside this apartment, a tiny little apartment, a little bitty living room, and I saw the pastor and the district superintendent, the pastor's wife and kids, and uh, us two missionaries. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be a small service this morning. <laughs> Just a few of us here. Well... They didn't get started right away. They, they fed me breakfast. It's more than I got here this morning, but they fed me breakfast. I did have a cup of coffee. I appreciate it. <laughs> but they fed me breakfast, and we sat there and chatted for a while, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm an American. My foot's starting to go like this, wondering what's going on here. Let's get this thing going, you know. And, and, but after 15 to 20 minutes went by, someone else came and knocked on the door. The pastor let them in. They came in and greeted us and sat down and began to talk with us. And, and after another 15 to 20 minutes, someone else came in. Another 15 to 20 minutes. It kept going like that where they were coming in staggered times because, you know, they can't all just, you know, converge on the same place like we did here this morning because then people in the neighborhood would know something was going on in that, in that apartment. And so would, they would become curious and things could be dangerous. And this kept going on, uh, 
these staggered arrivals until around noon. So here, you know, four hours after I arrived, church still hasn't started. And around noon, you know, the, the pastor stood up and he said, well, I think everyone is here that we were expecting this morning. And he said, so let's go ahead and worship. And he said a prayer and they began to sing. And uh, I don't know, they began to worship in, 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 by singing choruses and hymns and things in their own language. And I didn't know the language, but I hummed along with them. And, and then the pastor, uh, as he's leading them to sing, have you ever tried to sing in a whisper? That's what they did. And I, you know, for me, it's hard for me to hold a tune anyway, let alone in a whisper. And if they, if they were singing this whispering song and singing, and, 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 and yet as they were singing and worshiping and raising their hands to the Lord, the Holy Spirit came and settled upon us. We could sense Him. There was about 18, 19 people in that little, little apartment and in, the, in the living room. And, and the, when the Holy Spirit came and settled upon us, you could just sense His presence in such a real way. Around 2 o'clock, 2.30, something like that in the afternoon, the pastor stood up and he, he asked me to come and stand next to him and, and uh, he introduced me to the people. You know, we'd already been introduced, but in Africa you introduce again. And, uh, and he, he put both hands on my shoulders, one on each shoulder, and looked me dead in the eye and he said, Now, Rev. Don, he said, it's your turn to preach, but please don't get too excited. And that's kind of hard for me because once in a while I get wound up in the pulpit and, and uh, you know, move around a little bit and it might get a little bit loud. And, and yet he, he had asked me not to preach. I understood why. He said, we can't let the neighbors hear what's going on in here or we're all in danger. And so I preached a very simple message on holiness, what it means when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, how he can give us a Christ-like life, and make us Christ-like, how he can help us to live without sin. And I shared a, that simple message. I don't know how long I spoke, but, but when, I, when I got finished and I turned to sit down, before I could sit down, they began to slip off of the, the chairs and onto their knees and began to pray. And some of them even faced down, prostrate before God, and began to pray fervently but quietly that God would anoint them and fill them with his Holy Spirit to enable them to be the church that he would have them to be. And I heard stories later of how some of these people had gone into very difficult situations and were able to plant churches in places where none of the rest of us could ever have gone, but only through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And it's only through God's amazing grace that makes all of this happen. Well, after the service was over, we, we had a meal together again, and then, and then, you know, people began to leave one by one, two by two, every 15, 20 minutes. And uh, I finally got back to the hotel room about 8 o'clock at night. It's a long day, but it's a day I'll never forget because I saw God move upon his people. And, you know, we have in the, in the underground church, that's just a picture of what some of our churches look like. We have other churches that where we have men and women who, who face radicals nearly, uh, nearly daily. And we had a young, young pastor who was pastoring uh, 10 churches, and these, these churches only, only get, they only allow them to get between 15 to 20, maybe up to 25 people at the max. 
and, uh, but he's pastoring 10 congregations. And uh, somehow they discovered, the radicals discovered who he was and, and, and found him, and he was martyred. He was killed because he was winning people to Christ and out of the other, other religions. And when he died, here's part of what we do. I want to set this up a little bit. When he was pastoring, when he would go to the Bible college and take a Bible college course, he would come back to his congregations and teach them. Each one of them would study the Bible college courses as if they're all going to be pastors one day. Every single member of the church is trained as if they're going to be a pastor. Now, when he was, when he was martyred, the people scattered, not out of fear. That's not, that's not the reason they scattered. They scattered because it's part of the DNA that they have as Nazarenes that they scatter and they will go and plant more churches. Over 100 churches were planted because one pastor had to die. God has a way of changing tragedy to triumph and enabling the church to grow. It's kind of like stomping on a campfire. You know, if you stomp on it, the water does better to put it out, but if you stomp on it, it'll scatter and it'll spread the fire and make it even worse and, uh, and it will spread everywhere. That's the way the church is. When, when they try and stomp it out, God has a way of making it even better and even stronger. It's only through his amazing grace that all of this happens. Well, we also have, have churches in refugee camps. And the refugee camps will often meet, uh, the churches in those camps will often meet in a UNHCR tent. You've probably seen pictures of those tents on television, a white tent with UNHCR painted, printed on the side United Nations, and, and the, the, they will meet in those tents. That's where they live. There, I met a couple of young ladies who, who are pastors in the church, for the Church of the Nazarene, and they have congregations in these refugee camps. And uh, Hani uh, was one of the young ladies. Hani, the elder, was one who was, who, who was raised as a Christian, in, in, uh, actually in Mogadishu. And uh, her father was killed in, in, in the war there. And she and her mother uh, fled to this refugee camp. And in this refugee camp, they began to uh, try to win other people to Christ. And Hani found our Bible college and started going to the Bible college. And uh, she would go to the Bible college. And just as we were doing in the underground churches, because this is another type of underground church, she would come back and train her ladies with the very same course that she had just studied. And so her mother would sit outside the tent doing something, folding laundry or, or chopping vegetables or something, whatever a, an African woman would be doing sitting outside. And she'd be sitting out in front of the tent while Honey is teaching her ladies. And if they saw someone coming that they weren't too sure about that might cause them trouble, Honey's mother would stand up and walk towards the tent and say, Honey, your phone is ringing. And that was a signal for them that the ladies would set aside what they were studying and pick up embroidery and start taking an embroidery class in case someone stuck their head in the tent and could see what they were doing. Honey was telling us, you know, she cannot carry any literature into the camp at all. So when they're studying the, the Bible or studying the, the courses for the Bible college, she has to learn in the heart and in the head very carefully all of the content of that course 
And then she takes that to those ladies, and, you know, she has her Bible on her phone. Yes, everybody in Africa has a phone. You can even buy the same phones we have here for a lot less than you pay for them here. (laughs) But she has her Bible on her phone, and it's in an app that she can hide easily. If someone uh, is approaching her that she doesn't know, she just taps the screen, and the Bible disappears, and something else shows up. And then she can open it again with a series of passwords that she has to go through in order to get it. So she can, she can use that as, her, as part of her teaching tools, but she cannot carry any literature at all, any Christian literature. She told us that if they are caught with literature, they, they'll, they'll kill them, Christian literature. And she said also if, we're, if we are listening to uh, Christian music, she said they'll cut your ears off. And, you know, it's just a very desperate and very tense situation that they live under. Well, honey led another young lady to Jesus, and her name is also Honey. And uh, these are genuine names, <laughs> but her name is also Honey. And, and Honey, the younger, is only 16 years old when I met her. She's already pastoring a church of about 20 ladies at 16 years of age. And she also was coming to Bible college and doing the same as Hannah the Elder. When she'd come to Bible college, she would go back and she would teach what she learned to her ladies. And uh, these two ladies are very close friends and very close colleagues. But Hannah the Younger was sharing with us her testimony of what it was like when she comes to Bible college. And she said to us that when she goes back to to the camp, the refugee camp, she said her brother would beat her. Her brother's a very stout, strong uh, is a you know Muslim, and she said he would he would always beat her every time she comes back, and she said sometimes he would beat her with an iron rod to the point she couldn't get out of bed for several days, and she said this with a smile on her face, as this this is normal everyday life, and and she said and and she said that you know it's it's okay, she said it's worth it to me to be beaten if I can take this information back and train my ladies to know Jesus better. And when she, while she was sharing this and smiling and just with, filled with such joy at being able to share Christ with her ladies and to be able to teach them the Bible college courses, I was sitting there thinking, Lord, who am I that you would send me to train or to encourage someone who has such great faith like this? Because I've never suffered in any way for Jesus, not like that. And she was sharing with us how, how that happens. And we asked her, well, what about today, honey? What will happen when you go back home, go back to the camp? And she said, oh, with us another smile, she says, well, he'll beat me, but it's okay. She said, we have this saying in my language, which is when we are beaten, there's always a small part that remains. And she said, for me, that small part is Jesus. He gives me strength. And she said, It is worth it to me to be beaten to share my faith with my ladies. As we were leaving that day from the Bible college, and this this tribe is is, is very affectionate. You know, they'll they'll come up and give you a hug when they first meet you, and then, you know, and maybe a kiss on each cheek or something. and, And then they always want to hug you as they're leaving, and, Honey came up and gave us a hug, and I put my hands on her shoulders, and, and I kind of, I could feel the scars through her clothes of where her brother had beaten her. And she stepped back, and she looked up at me, and she says, Rev Don, it's okay. 
She said, it's okay, because every time I come to Bible college, I learn more, and I'm able to carry that back to my family, to my ladies. And I was just stunned, because it, to me, it is something that I've never dreamed of, the suffering that some people go through. She told us that day, she said, you know, I, I believe that if I am not suffering for Jesus, that I'm not living the life he wants me to live. And that's just a standard that they live by, expecting to be beaten or something like that. Well, that's, that's another type of church that we have. And, you know, we have several of those kinds of underground churches. And there's another church I'd like to describe, a young man named Muhammad. And you can tell by his name, his, his background, how he grew up. But Muhammad was part of a he was a member of a, of, a, of a caravan, these camel caravans. Did you know they still have these camel caravans in the Sahara Desert that roam around the desert and in an annual trek and ended up coming back to the same city or something about, it, about the same time every year? It's a big circle around throughout the desert, and they travel like that year-round. <clears throat> and and the, this caravan is made up of uh, almost all of them are, are like this, they're made up of extended family. So there's grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters and, you know, you name it, they're there. Second cousin, third, you know, I don't know how you do that down here. But here, all of these, this family is maybe 100, 150, perhaps even 200 people in one caravan. Well, Muhammad came from a caravan. His family, the extended family, sent him to a university in a town called Nazareth in Ethiopia. And they sent him there to earn a bachelor's of business degree to use in the desert. And they, they, you know, I didn't really understand that in the beginning, but he came, and when he came to the university, our missionary who lives in Nazareth has a ministry at that university, he and his, his congregation, and they, they, they have this ministry to new students at the university. And their goal is to build relationships with these new students, these freshmen and sophomore students, and build relationships with them to the point where they can share Jesus with them eventually. And so they will go and get to know these young people and then invite them home to their families and to their, to their dinner tables. I don't know any university student who will refuse a free meal. And so they'll come to, to their homes and, and have an opportunity to let them see what Jesus does in somebody's life. And they will continue to share with them and talking about the Old Testament and what God has done. And, you know, they just are able to share Jesus with them. And Muhammad found Christ while he was in school in, in the, at the university. Immediately, he started our Bible college program because he wanted to know he wanted to know all of our theology and our doctrine, and he wanted to find out how best to live a good, strong Christian life. And, and so, because he knew he was going back to be with his, with his caravan. And uh, he studied our Bible college. He actually graduated from our Bible college. And about the time he was ready to graduate from university, he came to our missionary. And he said, missionary, I have a problem. He said, I really don't know what to do. He said, maybe you can help me advise me. And so he said, the, here's the issue is that my family sent me here and they paid for my education. He said, now culturally, I'm obligated to go back to the family and serve them with my bachelor's degree 
in the family business. He said, I must go back. He said, but here's where the problem is. He said, I believe that God is calling me to be a pastor. How can I stay in town and be a pastor in one of these church buildings and, and with people here when I'm obligated by culture to go back to my family? And I believe the missionary had a vision from the Lord and because he went out and he bought six camels and brought those camels to Muhammad. And he said, Muhammad, I want you to take these camels and go back and join your family. He said, and remember this, the church is not the building. The church is the people. And he said, just remember that you have been trained as a pastor. And if God is calling you to be a pastor, then go back and pastor your family. And so Muhammad took those six camels, and that enabled him to become a contributing member of his, of his community, of his family, as a part of the business and the family, and, and able to use his business degree uh, there in, out in the Sahara Desert. And if you, if you can picture with me, well, Muhammad became the first camelback church of the Nazarene in Africa. I wouldn't walk a mile for a camel. It's only the older folks who get that. Me. <laughs> but, you know, here's, here he is out there with this camel and with his family, and if I can paint a visual image for you here real quickly, here he is. He comes and sits next to the campfire. Now, now think about this. In the Sahara Desert, you've probably seen you know, the old movies, you know, Lawrence of Olivier and a bunch of those old movies like that, and you see these caravans of camels running around and, and you know, their swords and stuff. They've got all of that. And out in the desert, in the Sahara Desert, in that, those parts of the desert where these caravans roam, there are no trees. It's sand dunes. And so, what do they burn for a campfire? Every child has a job. They follow the camels everywhere they go, and they pick up what the camels drop. Now look what you've done. And they, take, they collect all of the dung and dry it in the sun, and when it's dry enough to burn, that's what they use to cook their meals over. Mm-mm. And here they are sitting around this campfire. The entire caravan will use normally one campfire to conserve fuel. And they'll be cooking their meals, and Muhammad is able to sit there next to that campfire, and he can start telling them stories from the Old Testament. They're familiar with the Old Testament. Start telling them stories about, from the Old Testament, and he's a great storyteller, and be able to share with them how God has worked in the lives of the children of Israel and how he's rescued them and how he's saved them. And God's interaction between man and himself and drawing men closer to him. And then he can work his way into the New Testament. He can even talk about Jesus because Jesus has even mentioned in the Quran, his name is Esau in the Arabic. And so he can talk about Esau and what Esau has done in his own life. He can talk about how, how Esau did his ministry while he was on earth and, and then continue on to, to how Jesus was, was crucified and, and he died and was buried and was resurrected. And he can share with them what Jesus did in his own heart and life and the peace that he has now. And he was sharing with us that he had, had been able to win 30 of his family to Jesus. What an amazing way that God works. 
And when we talk about different kinds of churches and the Camelback Church of the Nazarene, who'd have thunk? Especially here in America. And yet, that is part of the way that God does things. And we see how God has worked in so many ways and in, in, through miraculous acts in people's lives and, and helping them to find him. And to, you know, I've, I, I would love to be able to tell you the, the, uh, the story. We, we also have regular churches, what we call normal. You know, I, I find actually that no two churches are exactly the same, so none of us are normal anyway. But I, I, the, we have what we would call normal churches where they have buildings, they have guitars, they have drums, they have, you know, PA systems. In fact, our pastors love PA systems. They'll, they'll ha open the windows, if they have windows, they'll open the windows on their church building and put these giant speakers in the window and their neighbors will hear the gospel. They don't realize sometimes when someone want to sleep in on Sunday morning. <laughs> Yet, <clears throat> the church is moving by leaps and bounds and God is bringing people to himself through the work and the ministry of men and women who are filled with his Holy Spirit. There was a, a young man that I met through a, a feeding program, Compassionate, Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. We were, we were appointed to serve in a certain area, and I met this chief who was an alcoholic. And through the process of all of the the, the ministries that we were doing, through all of the process there, he kept saying to me, he says, Rev Don, I want your church in my community. And one day he called me, and he asked me to come to his place, and he came, I went there, and he, he w walked with me out about 600 yards from his home, and he's, he says, I want you to stand here. And then he walked that down the slope a little ways and, and stopped and says, can you see me? And he went to another and did the same thing and then back over here and did the same thing. He walked back to me. Did you see where I stopped each of those, those corners? Is, that's the corners of the land that I want to give to the Church of the Nazarene so you can bring your church to our community. And five and a half acres. <laughs> and he even went and did all the paperwork with the government and had the land documents and everything all done and everything. And and uh, the, was given to us, and we built a church building on there with, with the help of a work and witness team from Detroit, Michigan. And uh, one day we were here in the U.S., and, and my phone rang, and it was Chief John calling me. And he said to me on the phone, we had did all of our greetings and everything, and then he said to me, he says, Rev, I'm just calling to let you know. I walked to our pastor's church, and uh, Pastor Richard's church, another Nazarene church, I walked over there uh, with my wife, came back, and I, was, I went over there with my wife and my children, and he said, I wanted you to know that I got saved on Sunday morning. And then he said, my wife got saved, and my two children got saved, and he said, I just wanted you to know that we are Christians now. Well, I was excited about that. And uh, a year later, we were back here again. We continued our ministry with them throughout that year. And a year later, we were back here in the U.S. again, and my phone rang again, and it was Chief John again. And I didn't really know what to expect, and so he, he, I, we just chatted for a little while, and then he says, well, Rev, he said, I just wanted to let you know. Our district superintendent came to our church, he said, and was preaching a message on holiness and entire sanctification. He said, I wanted you to know that I got entirely sanctified on Sunday. And I said, well, praise the Lord, John. I'm so glad to hear that. I said, Let, I, I want to come and see you as soon as we get back to Kenya. And he says, wait, wait, don't hang up. 
He said, I have a question. And I said, what would that be? And he said, can you explain to me how someone becomes a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene? Because God's calling me to be a pastor. And as time has gone by, taking Bible college courses and all of that, he is now Pastor Chief John of the church that we built. And he is mentoring young people, his own two children and four others. He's mentoring them to become pastors because they believe God has called them to be a pastor. This is the kind of ministry that is happening all across Africa. And it's only through God's amazing grace that it's able to happen. And men and women who are willing to trust and to obey.